This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Nancy Benson. This week, speaking up against sexual harassment. People are recognizing I'm not the only one, and hearing somebody else's story kind of helps someone feel empowered to share their own story. Who needs to speak out to stop harassment when Radio Health Journal returns? I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy Radio Health Journal, you'll also like Viewpoints, our sister show covering current affairs. This week on Viewpoints. It's not that philosophy is so funny. It's that jokes explain philosophical ideas and somehow make it funny. Philosophy for the rest of us. We'll meet two authors who use jokes to confront the big questions. Then, how a small town in Vermont became an Olympics powerhouse. All that and more this week on Viewpoints. Listen to Viewpoints on your favorite radio station, iTunes, and Stitcher. Unwanted sexual attention is getting a lot of attention these days. Victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault who've been silent for years, even decades, are finally speaking out in huge numbers. Historically, there has been an unspoken kind of code of silence. It has perpetuated the problem. You know, we're seeing this cascade of folks reporting and kind of speaking up because people are recognizing I'm not the only one. And hearing somebody else's story kind of helps someone feel empowered to share their own story. And the response to that is shifting. That's Ashton Lofgreen, a clinical psychologist at Rush University Medical Center's Road Home Program for veterans and victims of military sexual trauma. Historically, if, you know, someone did share, they wouldn't be believed or you know, people would think you're just saying this for attention. We're seeing those attitudes shift. And so I think that is empowering people to come forward and feel like my story can be helpful in making a change in this problem. I do hope that that movement continues to build and maintain its momentum and that we continue to see that people are held accountable for sexual misconduct. But held accountable for exactly what? What constitutes sexual harassment? On the issue of sexual harassment, I'm actually incredibly optimistic. If we don't let this moment degenerate into a witch hunt where any and all things that men do in a sexual or flirtatious way with women are immediately condemned and considered as career ruining, then you know, raising awareness of this, I think, can only be good for everybody concerned. That's Cynthia Eller, professor of religion at Claremont Graduate University and author of The Myth of Matriarchal Prehistory, Why an Invented Past Won't Give Women a Future. Obviously, there are genuine sexual predators, and they need to be shut down. They don't see anything wrong with what they're doing. They don't care that they are hurting or upsetting their victims. But I think there's just a lot of confusion, too, about what's acceptable, what's funny, you know, what is harmless and what is not. But I think there are also just some, you know, general rules that will apply and that will, you know, help to clarify things for people and create fewer of these kinds of misunderstandings when they're misunderstandings. And I just want to be clear that they're not always misunderstandings. Some men are trying to take advantage and they really don't care. Those men may be especially narcissistic, Emily Grijalva is assistant professor of organization and human resources at the University of Buffalo and an expert on narcissism. 
She and her colleagues, who happen to be male, have conducted research showing not only that men are more narcissistic than women, but that there's a positive connection between narcissism and sexual harassment. Narcissism can be a little bit confusing. It's a personality trait, but it can also be a clinical disorder when it appears at really high levels. Either way, whether it's a personality trait or a clinical disorder, it has the same features. And it's characterized by a grandiose sense of self-importance, or the idea that one is more important and more special than other people, a lack of empathy for other people, and a sense of entitlement. But at the same time, it's not only negative. Narcissists also tend to be charismatic, self-confident, and have high self-esteem. So they generally make a positive first impression, but this first impression tends to deteriorate over time. Grijalva says the sense of entitlement often figures in cases of sexual harassment. So it might make narcissistic men think that women owe them sexual favors if they're more entitled and more likely to believe they're deserving of things that they're not getting. So if you go on an expensive date and a woman refuses to have sex with you, the entitlement dimension might make you feel more deprived. Also, if a woman rejects a man, there's past research showing that narcissists are more aggressive in the face of self-esteem threats. So that could be another reason why they would be related. And then, of course, the low empathy, so having less concern over a victim's feelings or a victim's suffering, and cognitive distortion. Narcissists have almost a magical ability to interpret the world around them in a way that is self-serving. But experts say there are factors beyond narcissism that influence a man's proclivity for sexual harassment. The test is called the likelihood to sexually harass scale. It measures the willingness that people have, or express willingness they have, to commit acts of what I would describe as sexual coercion, or maybe also another term you might use is sexual exploitation. And that's one form of sexual harassment. That's essentially a quid pro quo type of behavior where, for example, someone would try to bribe you with some promises of advancement in your job in exchange for sex. That's John Pryor, Emeritus Distinguished Professor of Psychology at Illinois State University. The other two types are um, unwanted sexual attention. Unwanted sexual attention is basically some sort of sexual advance that can be uh, something that's verbal or nonverbal in nature. An example would be repeated requests for dates despite being told no. The third type of sexual harassment is something that we call gender harassment. Gender harassment is the most common form of sexually harassing behavior. It is essentially sexist behavior. Examples would include telling sexual jokes or jokes that put down women in the workplace, referring to women in uh, demeaning sexist sorts of terminology. Some people claim those kind of behaviors rank low on the list of offenses. But Pryor says men who engage in them have personality traits in common with rapists. The likelihood to sexually harass is measured by uh, the scale as a correlation with the likelihood to rape. So there are some common kinds of characteristics there. And you also see that there's some common psychological underpinnings as well in the sense that there are a series of beliefs that rapists often have about justifying rape, thinking it's okay to do it, she asked for it, she was doing things that brought it on herself, things like that. There are parallel kinds of things that go to sexual harassment. There are beliefs that people have that justify sexual harassment, that women exaggerate it, that they, they make false reports, it's really no big deal, things along those lines. And 
these psychological justifications are correlated with the likelihood that people will admit to doing these kinds of behaviors. According to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, the proportion of sexual harassment charges filed over the past 20 years has remained fairly consistent at between 29 and 31 percent of all harassment cases. However, the number of charges has gone up, but so have other forms of harassment claims due to race, religion, and so on. And yet there are a third fewer EEOC investigators today, almost 300 fewer than there were in 2002. That's why it takes almost a year to investigate and resolve one case. So with 29,000 sexual harassment cases filed with the EEOC in 2016 alone, you do the math. Emily Grijalva. One of the things I found disturbing, I suppose, in the realm of sexual harassment is when women sign a contract and as part of that contract, they're not able to pursue claims through the EEOC. They have to settle out of court and it leads to situations where the same behavior is perpetrated over and over without some kind of solution. Grijalva says many employees have no choice. Their employment contracts contain an arbitration clause in the fine print. It's only recently with this Me Too movement that there's more attention to the fact that these non-disclosure agreements and the fact that you're being forced to settle out of court through arbitration or something like that, the negative consequences it could have for women and society Obviously, these are put in place to protect businesses. Grijalva says because of this arbitration clause, only the most egregious sexually harassing behavior charges are taken to court. The bar for it being considered sexual harassment is usually relatively high in the court. There are these two types of sexual harassment. One of them is hostile environment. And hostile environment means that there's a very pervasive sense of sexual harassment in the workplace. It's occurring repeatedly and it's relatively serious in nature. And for it to merit sexual harassment in the course, like I was saying, it has to be severe. Usually workplaces themselves have a lower bar. You see how management responds to sexual harassment is important. If people thought that management really doesn't care about these kinds of behaviors, they're unconcerned about this kind of thing, then you see that sexual harassment is much more likely to occur. In short, the cards are often stacked against targets of sexual harassment. Hence the Me Too movement, where alleged abusers are tried in the court of public opinion. But as politician Roy Moore and a few others have claimed, I'm innocent. She was out to get me. I expect there might be some greater tendency for people who make false claims or are gunning for somebody for some sort of reason to come forth as well as people who've actually had these kinds of experiences. There's really not much to gain from making false claims. I think the statements that this could turn into a witch hunt are are fear-based. And I think another way of kind of reinforcing the status quo that, you know, it's better not to talk about this, it's better for this issue to remain in silence. So where do we go from here? The courts can't or won't help in most cases, but the Me Too movement shows no signs of slowing down. Eller has some suggestions. I think we just have to acknowledge that we're always going to be working with a substrate of facts, which is that some people will be traumatized by things that other people won't be traumatized by, and not necessarily the expected things. If you've had a traumatic experience, say you're a tsunami survivor, the sound of a white noise machine making waves may freak you out unbearably. And that doesn't mean that the person who turned that machine on is 
a horrible, insensitive person. It's just that different things will hit different people in different ways. But I wouldn't want that to detract from the overall case that needs to be made in terms of sexual harassment, which is that it's real, that it diminishes women's chances in um, workplaces, that it has a very deleterious effect on self-esteem and ability to have the kind of freedom that men customarily have in the workplace. One thing is clear, silence is no longer an option for many women. And when management sends a clear message that sexually harassing behaviors will not be tolerated, research shows men with such proclivities won't engage in them. So maybe management is the place to start. You can learn more about all our guests by visiting our website at radiohealthjournal.net. Our writer-producer this week is Polly Hansen. I'm Nancy Benson. Medical notes this week. We recently reported on the age that parents should consider getting their kids a smartphone. Now comes a study in the journal Emotion, finding that teens who spend more time on their phones are less happy than those who find other things to do. Researchers determined that teens who spend less than an hour a day on their smartphones are happiest. However, there's one large caveat to the study. Scientists admit they don't know if smartphone use makes kids unhappy or if unhappy kids use their phones more. Experts are beginning to realize that one of the more serious public health threats to the modern world is loneliness. It's a particular problem among older people, with studies showing as many as half of those over age 60 are lonely. Other studies are showing that loneliness markedly increases heart disease risk, depression, and cognitive decline. Now government is trying to do something about it. Great Britain has appointed a minister for loneliness. And finally, if you're tempted to stifle a sneeze, don't. The British Medical Journal has published the extreme case of a 34-year-old man who tried to bottle up his sneeze and ended up hospitalized for a week. The sneeze ruptured the man's throat after he held his nose and clamped a hand over his mouth, leaving the sneeze's force no place to go. And that's Medical Notes this week. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.